can turn in your Bibles to First First Peter chapter three. We're in verses eighteen through twenty-two. I thought about asking Paul to preach on this text for me this week, but I, that would have been that would have been too mean of me. I think I don't know. This was a, this is a tough one. If you note the title of my sermon, like. I usually write the titles of my, this is a confession, I usually write the titles of my sermon on like Tuesday, whereas the actual sermon is written on Thursday and Friday, so there's always this very tenuous relationship between the title of my sermon and the actual content of my sermon, but it's pretty good today. No, it's okay. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a lot of, just based on the number of television shows about it, mysteries, like they do fascinate us, right? Um, and we have the things that we all sort of know about, the urban legends, right? The, 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 the Bigfoots and the Loch Ness Monsters and the Chupacabras. And but then we also have these sort of... Uh, crime mysteries and and certainly there's an entire genre that's been around for so long of like just mystery books that are lots of fun to read and then you if you're a child of the 70s and 80s you know who db cooper is right this man who hijacked a plane and got a the whopping sum of a hundred thousand dollars or something like that and then jumped out of the airplane and was never seen again. And, uh, but, but then, and there was an old unsolved mystery show. And you can tell when a town is a tourist trap if it has a Ripley's Believe It or Not thing on it. I don't even, I've never been to one, right? Well, there, the Bible has its share of mysteries as well. And, and this is one of them, uh, especially verses 19 and 20. And I love this. This is, this is the quote of the week for me. This gives me great comfort. As Martin Luther said this, a wonderful text is this, amen, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certain just what Peter means. (laughs) I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Like, I'm, I'm good with that. That's, if that's what Martin Luther, that's where he came down on it. I'm pretty comfortable with how I'm feeling about it. And that's, that's good enough to me, right? Um, go ahead and sell those t-shirts at Gatlinburg. Um, unsolved mystery. Well, when you come to a text like this in the Bible, it's important to, to not panic, right? Follow the advice of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
ask yourself a couple questions. First of all, what is plain in the text? What, what can we understand? What can be easily understood? And, and then what clues does the, the context and the author and the audience and all of that give us about the text and what he's been talking about and what the intent is and what he's been talking like so like ask those questions about the text and try to discern what it is that you can know and understand about it and we're going to we're going to try and do that this morning but it's also important when you come to a mysterious text that the meaning is sort of obscured and difficult to understand that you not let those passages of scripture become the source of novel theological ideas like there's a lot of things we could look at this text and sort of and people have looked at it and said oh this is this is an example of universalism this is an example of people you know souls of humans after death having the opportunity to to be saved and like this is this is not that and we, it's important that we not go to these sort of aber like these these tangential, differing, novel places with texts that are difficult to understand. Because we've got to also ask this one other question, how does the rest of Scripture help me to understand what is being said in this text? And so, just for your own edification, as you come to places in the Bible that are confusing like this, or seem strange and obscure that we sort of ground ourselves in those sort of basic principles. And so by asking these questions, I think we can, we can kind of make some headway this morning as we go through this. Uh, but just know that we're, <laughs> again, we are not going to resolve this mystery this morning definitively. But I think there's a key here based on what Peter has been talking about and based on where we end up in verse 22 and that key is this word that is translated in your Bible, be subject to. That we have seen throughout verse or chapter two and chapter three as Peter Peter calls the 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 people to live in light of this hope that they have in Christ Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus, and we end up this morning in this sort of victorious reign of Jesus over all of these authorities and, and things, right? That Peter has been calling his people, God's people, Jesus, followers of Jesus, these elect exiles, as he says, to be subject to these various relationships that they might find themselves in, in living in the midst of a pagan culture as the people of God. And so we see time and time again, Peter saying, be subject in this circumstance, be subject to the authority in this circumstance, be subject to the authority in this, this circumstance. And where we end up in verse 22 is all authority being subject to King Jesus. And because that is our ultimate truth, the ultimate place that we, we find ourselves then we're safe as his people. We're safe to submit in all of these difficult places and relationships because our hope comes from the truth that Jesus reigns supreme over all authorities in heaven and on earth. So let's look at the three points this morning. The king lives in victory. The king proclaims victory. And the king reigns in victory. 
As we go along, I've got a couple of sub-points, so if, you're, if, if outlines make you happy, you should be, you should be happy this morning. Um, so let's look at first the king lives in victory, and, and sub-point, right? Uh, the king lives to hold his people. And I want to point out that, that Peter has been consistently keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus throughout his whole letter so far. So let me kind of walk us back and do a little bit of review. In chapter 1, 8 and 9, Peter says to the, the audience that he's writing to, these Gentile believers in this pagan culture, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And he is constantly bringing us back to Jesus in this letter, not only as our example, which he certainly, he certainly is, but as the very bedrock, right, the very foundation, the, the cornerstone, right, the stone against which, which all other stones in the building is aligned and measured and stacked upon. Chapter 2, verse 4, remember Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter places Jesus in front of these engaged exiles as, as the pattern of this humble, submissive life. And our lives are to be transformed and conformed into that pattern of Jesus. He is the righteous one who stands in our place and receives the full penalty of our sin. Chapter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. Uh, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. He calls back to Isaiah 53. And then this morning in our text, verse 18, which we kind of ended up at last week, uh, he says, for Christ also suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous, right? What is, he, what is he doing this? How is, how is the victorious king holding his people? What is Peter doing as he calls his people to live after this pattern in these difficult places and relationship? He's given them ballast. That Jesus is, is the ballast for our boat. You know what ballast is in, in a ship? A ship needs weight, it needs weight, way down in the very bottom of, of where it, uh, the bottom of the keel, it needs to have ballast, it needs to have something that stabilizes it, and otherwise it'll ride too high in the water, and when a wave comes, it'll, it'll be swamped and capsized because it's not stable enough, because it's, it's riding too high on the waves. Jesus is like that, that ballast that draws us down deep into the, the water of life as it rushes over us and threatens to tip us, but it keeps us stable. Jesus is the ballast. Peter is giving his readers and us the ballast for our boat. He's the example. His character and his love for his people. He is the living stone that secures us and reconciles us to the Father, that our our union with Christ, our union with Jesus is the source of the identity of these elect exiles that Peter's writing to. 
And so when the storm of suffering and persecution, doubt and fear overwhelm, you won't capsize because, because our faith and our identity and our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the king lives to hold his people. The king lives by the spirit. That would be the, the next sub point here. Verse 18 again, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, so one of the many questions that we have here is what exactly does Peter mean by this being made alive in the spirit? Is Peter saying that Jesus's spirit was made alive in his resurrection, meaning like he moved from a state of death to life, uh, which, which is certainly true. Or is Peter saying that Jesus was resurrected by the, the means or the power of the Holy Spirit? And in one sense, yes, <laughs> to both of those things, absolutely. But also in another sense, it, it kind of doesn't matter so much. But I want to latch on to this, this idea that he was made alive by the means or by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That what Jesus does in the, in the life of his people is what the Spirit does. And without being careful not to blur the distinction in our minds between the two persons of the Trinity, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, we can say in a sense that the work of Jesus and the work of God the Holy Spirit are at times indistinguishable. That there is a unity in the work of the Trinity and that Jesus was dependent upon the work of the Spirit. That he was, remember, he was begotten by the Spirit, right? And the Spirit descended on him like a dove at baptism. And the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. And the Spirit empowered him both in miracle and in message. So like, think about that for just a minute. And then remember Romans 8. Romans eight eleven. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit at work in Jesus is at work in you. The Peter is saying that you can, you can live like Jesus in all of these suffering places with hope and confidence because God raised Jesus from the dead. That, that, that God vindicated Jesus from all of the injustice and the unjust treatment of him by the world. And because God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, we can live in the middle of these suffering places and difficult relationships and, and persecutions and revilings and all of this stuff because we know that he will one day vindicate his people in the same way that he vindicated Jesus. What does that mean? It means that if you're in Christ, you are safe. You are safe and you are free because of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. It means you are safe and you are free to live a life that is obedient to the calling to which you have been called in Christ Jesus. To live righteously in the midst of a pagan culture. 
to live as those engaged exiles as we've been called to do. Separating ourselves in one sense by the righteousness that we're called. Like, we're not going to do that perfectly. We're not going to be perfectly righteous. We're not going to, we're going to sin. We're going to stumble. But we live and we walk and we stumble and we, we are picked back up by grace and we move forward with grace and we, we pray for one another and we help one another and we recognize the, the weakness and brokenness in one another and we enter into this community of exile that is the church together knowing that we are all broken, that we are all sinful, that we all need Christ Jesus. But we're free to enter into that community with one another because of the the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit living within us. So the king proclaims victory. So first sub-point here would be the victory proclaimed in every realm. Let's look at 18, a little bit of 18 and then on into 20 being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay. (laughs) Many questions here, I think. But here are the top four, right? So where did Jesus go? When did he go there? Uh, What spirits are he talking about here and what did he say and again the definitive answer it is just unknowable right but i think there's there's a, a little bit that we can glean there's been so much spilled ink spilled over this mystery by so many for so long and we're just not even close but let's let's see if there are some conclusions that we can draw by what what is plain in the text here and First of all, this, this word spirits most frequently is used to refer to non-human spirits. So this isn't, this isn't referring to human souls here, but it's referring to non-human spirits most likely in most views, most people think like something like demons, that sort of thing. Okay, and so there, there's a link. So we've got these non-human spirits. We've got this link somehow between these spirits and the days of Noah that we're just, we're not sure what's going on there. So let's, let's kind of hang with this idea that these are, these are disobedient spiritual beings who had some relationship with the days of Noah, possibly leading up to the destruction of the world through the flood, Right. And I don't think we have to understand the location or the nature of the, the prison or even, even when Jesus made this you know, pastoral visit um, to them. But I think we can draw a little bit of a conclusion about what Jesus said and the general nature of what he proclaimed, just not the exact words, right? So this word caruso is translated in your, most of your Bibles as to proclaim. I think there's, there's one translator, the New King James might use the word preach, but it's, it's, it's a proclamation. It can mean either to proclaim or to preach, but most modern translations use proclaim rather than preach here. And there's, there's no reason to think that this was an evangelistic visit, right? Given the end result of where we end up in verse 22, right? 
with all of the powers under his feet. And so my thinking is that this is a proclamation of Jesus' supreme victory to these mysterious spirits in this mysterious prison. Jesus proclaims. Jesus' victory and power is, is proclaimed and, and demonstrated in all places. That there's nowhere that escapes this proclamation of who Jesus is and his victory that he won. So the victory proclaimed and then the victory sealed in his people. And so Peter draws a line from the saving of Noah and his family through the floodwaters and our baptism into the covenant of grace, verses 20 and 21. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the day of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's think about this for just a minute. Noah's family was saved from God's wrath in the ark. If you remember the, the story of, you know, the Lord told Noah to build him an archiarchy and and God's, God saved Noah's family from his wrath at all the wickedness and sin in the world using the means of the ark. But what was it that saved Noah truly? It was God's faithfulness that was working through his covenant to save. We are saved from God's wrath through faith in Christ, what is this? This is God's faithfulness working through his covenant to save his people. Just as the ark and the flood point us to God's saving work and covenant faithfulness, the sacrament of baptism points us to God's saving work and covenant faithfulness. When Peter says, And here's where a lot of the confusion comes in. When Peter says, baptism now saves you, well, again, (laughs) so many questions. Uh, And here's where understanding what the rest of the Bible has to say to these questions can help us understand what this means. Because it's clear that salvation is by grace through faith and not as a result of a work like baptism. And Peter actually goes into this. Baptism saves you as an outward sign of the faithfulness of God, for salvation is by grace through faith. So in other words, Peter says this isn't about the physical act, the work, the religious uh, exercise of being baptized that salvation comes. Because he says this is not as a a removal of dirt from the body. But what is it truly about that Peter points us to? It's about an appeal. (laughs) It's about an appeal, appealing not to my righteousness, not appealing to my having checked off this religious box in baptism. Check, got that done. This isn't about appealing to my church attendance or my quiet time consistency or my, you know, helping little old ladies across the street or or any of those things. It's, It's an appeal to God. It's an appeal 
to a person. It's an appeal to the character and nature of a loving heavenly father who goes to great lengths to save his people. It's about appealing to the living stone Jesus that Peter's been talking about so much. About appealing to the Christ that he constantly again and again is drawing his reader's attention back to. The one who is both our example and the one who offers himself for us. Our example in the the place of our identity. We appeal to God for the cleansing of our sin-stained consciences. Through faith in the victorious work of Christ. And that victory is both accomplished and demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now let's look finally at Jesus the king reigns in victory. Like if you don't walk out of here with more questions than you walked in with then you know, I would be very surprised and there are so many unanswered questions but I, but I think what we can know about this passage points us to the great and wonderful truth the best truth that that suffering Christians could ever hear. And that is, the king is on the throne. 21 and 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Throughout this letter, Peter's been encouraging his readers to follow the example of Christ in suffering. We've already said that we're going to enjoy the same vindication from God that Jesus enjoyed, that his victory assures this for his suffering people, that Jesus was ridiculed and tortured and murdered as a criminal, and now where is he? (laughs) He's alive. He's alive, and he is on the throne of heaven. While those who murdered and tortured and reviled are dead. (laughs) And they're awaiting judgment. If you're in the middle of some difficult circumstance, whether that be through just life's waves pummeling you, or maybe it is persecution in some form or another, or maybe maybe it's it's fear, maybe it's you pummeling you from within these overwhelming feelings of guilt and 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 anxiety and shame at your sin and just feel like you're losing the battle. Where is your hope? Your hope is in the one who is alive and on the throne and reigning. The king is on the throne. And the king's enemies submit. He's on the throne at the right hand of God. And it says, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So far, all of this has been very kind of incorporeal like, I don't know like 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 sort of a strange place to to live and to think for a week as you write a sermon and we are we are we are embodied people we are people of flesh and blood and Peter's readers live in a world of just like we do of of family and dinner tables and commutes and hospitals and courtrooms 
What does this have to do with how we are to manage life as a follower of Jesus? This means that if King Jesus has brought these mysterious spirits and powers and angels and authorities into submission, these, these lofty, invisible, terrible, and terrifying things that have been made his footstool, even the, the lofty, invisible, terrible, and terrifying circumstances of life are in his hands as well. If he can manage all of these things, he can manage what you got going on on Thursday. Not to, not to minimize the terror and pain of, of whatever that might be, but to raise your confidence in the king who is seated on the throne. That Jesus is alive and well, and he's king over all. And so, when we face these unexpected, heart-rending difficulties, the things that we never thought we would have to experience, the, when we face the loneliness of suffering, the loneliness of, of struggling, the, when we face the, the shame that we feel at feeling nothing towards your spiritual life, when you know you should make it a priority, but you just can't figure out how to, and, and when, you fear, when you face the, the pain of, of fear of, of just letting anybody get close, whatever it is, Jesus is not only the supreme authority in the universe, seated at, at God's right hand, he's the king who was, who was patient in Noah's day with the absolute wickedness of mankind. He is the king who, who suffered and died that he might bring you into God's presence because he has all authority in heaven and on earth and he has bent it towards the singular wonderful purpose of being with you always. Remember, he promises that he will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And that includes all of your suffering. That includes all of your struggling, all of the persecution of the world and hell. You belong to him by faith. We've set this table again this morning so that God's broken people might come and celebrate the king as he sits on the throne. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we do celebrate. We do recognize that our response to your rule and reign uh, should be to worship, should be to delight should be to obey joyfully because, because of your mighty love for us. Lord, you use this each week. You use the table to remind us of that love. You use, you use the sacrament 
to remind us of your faithfulness. You use the sacrament of baptism to remind us of your faithfulness to your covenant. Lord, thank you for giving us these things which preach the gospel to us so well each week. I pray that you would be glorified as we come this morning before your, your table that is set with your own broken body and, and shed blood. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.